is my great honor to introduce to you Dr. Mark Genelette. Uh, Mark and I met when I was in seminary. Uh, he had just finished up his doctoral studies at St. Andrews in Scotland, and he and his wife Naomi had moved to Oxford, and before it was all said and done, uh, they had had William, and uh, before they headed back to the States, and you went straight from Oxford to uh, Beeson Divinity School and been there ever since. And so it was a source of real excitement for me when Lauren and I and the girls uh, moved to Birmingham to know that there would be a friendly uh, face here and has since proved to be the only friendly face uh, here to us in, in, in Birmingham. No, but Mark, it's a real pleasure and it's been great to, to really have parallel tracks in ministry and uh, delighted you're a part of this place and the ministry that we have here. So God bless you. Dr. Genelette will preach after we stand and sing hymn number 458, verses 1 through 3. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Our reading this Monday, Thursday, is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, the Lord, then, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you not understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you, that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the human foot's a strange thing. Uh, it serves a purpose, keeps us balanced, lets us have mo mo movement so we can move forward in motion. I'm not sure there's a lot of aesthetic quality to a foot. Do you think so? Uh, and I know that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but a foot. And I know some of you in here, you paint your toes. That seems like an exercise in futility to me. You know, a foot is a foot painted toenails or not. 
And of all of our extremities, the foot can become dirty and really downright disgusting. I played Jesus in a church pageant when I was in high school. I'm embarrassed to tell you that this morning, to be honest. But there it is, the church musical with Jeanette playing Jesus. If it sounds painful, you're right, it was. Anyhow, during the musical, there was, of course, a foot washing scene. And we really did it. Uh, I'll never forget the experience because we rehearsed and rehearsed the scene. And here I was, a 16-year-old, taking off the shoes of my disciples, who were all men old enough to be my father, and some of them even my grandfather. And I'm not saying this merely for rhetorical effect this afternoon, but I don't remember very much of that high school experience at all, but I do remember those feet. I can picture them in my mind's eye, even now, slightly discolored, cracked toenails of men that I had known for almost all of my life. It was embarrassing for me that day. It's embarrassing for me even now to tell you about it. Because feet, up close and personal, well, they, they, aren't, they aren't pretty. The scene in John chapter 13 is embarrassing too. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's betraying social convention. He's putting us in a very uncomfortable position. He's been doing this, by the way, for the whole of John's gospel. So why should we be surprised to see him do it tonight, the night before he dies? You remember earlier in John's gospel, he met with a Pharisee under the cover of night. But in the very next chapter, he met with an immoral Samaritan woman right in broad daylight for everybody to see. Jesus isn't domesticated by social convention. And on this Monday, Thursday, well, he's up to it again. He's, he's on his knees and he's washing feet. Now, John's gospel leaves no doubt as to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. John's gospel doesn't unfold the messianic secret so that only in time do we fully appreciate the divine character of the gospel's central dramatic figure. From the moment we are out of the gate in John's gospel, John tells us that this Jesus of Nazareth is the very word of God made flesh. He was with God in the beginning, and he is God. The whole world was created and sustained by God's word. In other words, the Atlantic Ocean was created by the active agency of the word. And do you know what keeps Florida from being swallowed by the Atlantic Ocean? The continued active agency of the word. The word creates and sustains the world. What word, we ask? The very word of God made flesh and dwelling in our midst, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the very face of God, come to redeem his people. And how does he come? Again, John tells us right out of the gate in chapter 1. He comes as the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. Jesus of Nazareth, very God of very God. The Messiah who's come to take the sins of the world. Jesus begins his ministry at a banquet, at a meal. In John chapter 2, you remember Mary approaching him and admitting a social faux pas. We've, we've run out of wine. And, and Jesus, in a way that's not all that comfortable, slightly rebukes his mother. And he tells her, well, that hour, my hour's not yet come. And here we are at the end of Jesus' ministry at a meal again. But the scene is different. The hour, it says in John chapter 13, verse 1, the hour is now upon him. And here is Jesus Christ hosting the messianic banquet, the celebratory meal of the inbreaking kingdom 
of God in the world. And while we're at this meal, the unexpected happens. Jesus, it says in John 13, knowing that he came from God and would return to God, he pushes back from the table and he begins to wash their feet. Now, there's several reasons why this is unexpected, an unexpected move in the story of John's gospel. But one of the primary reasons why this is so surprising is that John chooses to include this scene and the Last Supper meal and not the Eucharist celebration. The other Gospels, as you all know, narrate the institution of the Lord's Supper precisely at this point. This is my body. This is my blood, which is given for you. But John narrates for us the foot washing scene. I want to press into this a little bit with you all this afternoon. Because I think the unpacking of this narratival choice by John is going to unlock for us the significance of the foot washing activity of Jesus. So I'm going to get teacherly just for a moment, and if I lose you, I'll tell you when to come back in. Number one, John's gospel assumes that his readers know the gospel of Mark. Now, I'm not going to argue for this understanding. I'm just simply going to assert it. John assumes his readers know Mark. And because this is the case, John does not repeat matters that can be found in Mark. So so let me put a point on this. John's decision not to include the Eucharist celebration, this is my body, this is my blood, is not a downplaying of the, of the significance of the Lord's Supper and his institution of it. John assumes that you already know and value it because you've read Mark's gospel. The point number two, John makes a decision to include the foot washing scene instead of the Eucharistic scene. And we feel the absence when we read John's gospel. Where's the Eucharist? So the foot washing scene in John chapter 13 is doing in John's gospel what the Eucharist scenes do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what are the Eucharist scenes doing? They're providing insight into the character of Jesus' death. The Eucharist is the symbol, the symbolic act of Jesus where he helps us understand the sacrificial character of his life and his death. In other words, the symbolic action becomes a lens, glasses, for us to wear so that we can understand what Jesus' death is all about. This is my body. This is my blood, broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But John's gospel has been clear from the beginning that Jesus' death is understood in sacrificial terms. Remember, John the Baptist, chapter 1, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Agnus Dei. So what then is the symbolic force of Jesus' actions here? His pressing back from the table, filling a basin with water, and washing feet. What's Jesus telling us here in John 13 about the nature of his death by this symbolic act? Jesus is showing his disciples that his death on their behalf is the death of a slave. It's the death of a servant. Crucifixion is a death suffered by slaves. About a hundred years ago from the night of Jesus' Last Supper, there was a slave revolt in the vicinity around Rome, led by, you know the man, led by Spartacus. A two-year siege they laid on Rome. But after two years, Spartacus was quelled, 
the insurrection was put down, and the whole Apian Way, that road leading in and out of Rome, was lined with crucified slaves, reminding that this is what happens to those who set themselves up over against Rome. Slaves die on crosses. And the foot washing scene tells us that Jesus is going to make himself Lord by becoming a slave, by becoming a servant. The culmination of Jesus' ministry of love is his death as a slave. And the foot washing scene anticipates Jesus' role as a slave, which climaxes as everything does in John's gospel at the cross. No one but a slave would perform this kind of duty. It's an enormous act of humiliation. No one does this but a servant. No one washes feet but a slave. And here's Jesus on this Monday, Thursday, showing us that he really does love his own all the way to the end. He does love them completely and fully, laying down his life in their place. Here Jesus shows us that he is the Lord, but he's the Lord insofar and only as he is our slave, as he is our servant. If you're slightly embarrassed and offended, by Jesus taking on a slave's duty for his friends, then you're in good company. If you blush to see him with a basin and a towel, then rightly so. Peter can't take it either. He's scandalized by the scene, infuriated by Jesus' act of humility. Uh Uh-uh. You're not washing my feet. Actually, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. What a claim. Why? Well, I know who you are, Jesus. I was the first to identify you as son of the living God. Do you remember that, Lord? I've seen too much, Jesus. I saw the winds obey you one night. I saw bread and fish multiply right before you. I saw a little girl raised from the dead, Jesus. You did that. I had the best fishing experience of my life with you, Jesus, one time. And one time I was on a mountain with you, Jesus, and I saw your glory unveiled, and Moses and Elijah paled in comparison to you. I know who you are, and there's no way that I'm going to let you wash my feet. Jesus, if you're not offended by this activity, then I'm going to be offended for you. Stop this absurdity. No, never. You know, from a certain vantage point, Peter's right. This is absurd. This is scandalous, and it's offensive. The very word of God incarnate scrubbing feet with a towel, wringing it out again, and scrubbing some more? I mean, feet are bad enough, but I have to imagine first century feet especially bad. But forget the feet. Kings don't do this kind of thing. Very much less the son of the living God. So Peter protests. And Jesus tells him something really important. You don't understand this now, Peter, but you will later. But Peter protests again. And now Jesus gets direct with Peter. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you will have no share with me. And Peter then changes his tune, as we say around here, real quick-like. No share with you? No share in your kingdom? No participation in your reign and rule? No salvation? Well, then start scrubbing, Jesus. Don't just scrub my feet. 
Give my whole body a good washing. But you have to love Peter, bold and brash. The most obscure verse of this chapter might be, in fact, the clue to unlocking it. I'd like to read verse 10 to you one more time. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And at first glance, Peter's logic makes complete sense, doesn't it? Well, if this act of washing, this act of service is the means by which I share with you in your kingdom, then why stop at the feet? You know, get the pressure washer out and go to town. But Jesus does not follow Peter's logic. Jesus tells Peter that his whole body doesn't need washing, but just his feet. In other words, Peter, what you need is this particular act of service, this particular act of foot washing. If you want a full and final share with me, if you want to know my love in its fullest, the kind of love that I'm showing you all the way to the end, then you need more than anything else in the world what this foot washing symbolizes. And you might not understand it now, Peter, but give it 24 hours or so. It's going to begin to dawn on you. I'll make sure you understand that what you need more than anything else is my self-sacrifice as a slave, as a servant on your behalf. And of course this is the case. This is the hour in which God's glory is revealed in the world. And it takes place in the servanthood of Jesus. Jesus, our slave. Isaiah prepares us for all of this. He tells us in Isaiah chapter 52, 7 that our God is going to reign. And then six verses later, Isaiah demonstrates and introduces to us the suffering servant who we'll hear about tomorrow. Those who bear our iniquities, the one who dies in our place, the servant promised in Isaiah. When Jesus rolls up his sleeves and begins to wash feet, he is demonstrating the extravagant grace of God in Isaiah's promised servant. Here he is. On his knees, the love of God on display, loving his own all the way to the end. Jesus, the Son of God, the servant of God, the servant of humanity, and the Savior of the world. On Monday, Thursday, we often focus our thoughts on the servanthood of Jesus as an example for Christians to follow. Some of you might even do a foot washing in your house later tonight, I don't know. And rightly so. Jesus makes this move himself. In verse 15 he says, For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. The theologian Karl Barth said, There is one biblical word that aptly describes the work of a Christian corresponding to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. What is that word, Mr. Bart? Service. When we bear one another's burdens, Paul says, when we strap on the towel and acts of self-giving and service to others and the relinquishing of our own independence for the sake of others, Paul tells us, you fulfill the law of Christ. How do we serve Jesus? John 12 tells us. You serve Jesus by following Jesus. Obedience is only found by belonging to him who came in the form of a servant. Not in self-chosen paths, where even acts of charity in that path might be secret paths to personal domination, not service. But I don't want to focus on that part of Monday, Thursday today, as important as it is. 
I want to ask you a question. Have your feet been washed by Jesus? It is so difficult to admit weakness or need. Some of you actually maybe pride yourself in the fact that you don't need anything. I don't like to admit it, but I tend in that direction too. You see others and you size them up because they're needy, but you're not. You need help with that? Nope, I got it. Can we bring you a meal while you're, thanks so much, but we're fine. And I'm really not at all interested today in the social games that we play with one another. But many of us pride ourselves on what Aristotle called self-sufficiency or self-mastery, independence, autonomy, self-reliance. Years ago, over a decade now, we had a very dear friend of ours in Greenville, South Carolina that was injured seriously in an ATV accident. Her life was hanging in the balance. Her brain had swelled and she was in serious jeopardy. We sat in the, in the waiting room at Greenville Memorial Hospital and the parents were there distracted and distraught. We all were. And in comes the neurosurgeon with two blonde nurses on each side. I'm not making this up. I mean, it looked like some made-for-TV drama. And the surgeon, confident, told the mother and the father, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in, I'm going to relieve the pressure, and he goes through all the details. And the mother, in a trembling voice, will never forget this, she looked at the surgeon and she said, this young, confident, handsome young man, I'm praying for your hands. I'll never forget his reply. He said, well, ma'am, I can do it. Monday, Thursday is an offense to Aristotle. It's an offense to that neurosurgeon. And it's an offense to you and to me and all of our human efforts to save ourselves. Peter's instinct to tell Jesus, no, never, might seem initially right, but he was so very, very wrong. So on this Monday, Thursday, if you want to share in God's kingdom, if you want the promised deliverance from sin and death that only God can provide, if you want to be numbered with the noble company of the saints, then like every one of them, you're going to have to push back from the table. You're going to have to take off your shoes. You're going to have to roll up your pant legs and allow the king of the universe to be your servant, to wash your feet, to die a servant's death on your behalf, to love you to the very end. Take these words, O Lord, and seal them on our heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.